right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. But today on the show, this is actually a special episode. We are doing something we do every year, which is looking back at our top 10 first-time watches of 2023. As we do every year, Josh Bell from Awesome Movie Year joins me, and we recount some of our favorite first-time watches of older films of last year and we get into a lot of great movies here so it is a fun conversation always and we will hopefully recommend some good movies that you can go check out so that's coming up here in a second before we get to it i do want to remind you as always to make sure you are subscribed to piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts you can follow us on social media at piecing pod And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. And also, don't forget, we do have a Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, from Josh's podcast, Awesome Movie Year, and from my music career. Lots of great stuff over there, so check it out. It's patreon.com slash Rosen. We appreciate you just being out there listening, but if you want to support these shows as well as my music in that way, we really do appreciate it, so check it out. So with that said, let's get into our top 10 first-time watches of 2023. All right, Josh Bell is back with us for our annual first-time watches episode. We're going to talk about some of our favorite first-time watches of older movies that we watched for the first time in 2023. Josh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about a bunch of really good movies. I agree. This is always such a fun thing to go back and prep for like, oh yeah, that was awesome. Like, you know, <laughs> it's it's great going back through the letterbox list and like remembering some of these. A couple of these on my list were things that like, I don't know, they kind of surprised me. I was like, oh yeah, like that was just great. Like, I don't know, did you, while prepping for this, did you have anything that kind of uh, just like really jumped out at you? Like, oh man, I almost forgot that I watched that this year. Well, I keep this as a running list throughout the year. Like Mm -hmm. I do for all my year end stuff because there's otherwise I would not keep track of it. So, I mean, I think I had an idea of what was there already, but I did, you know, obviously I looked at that list again to prepare for this. And I think there was, uh, there were a couple of things from like the very beginning of the year that Mm -hmm. I had noted down, but it was like, oh yeah, I watched that. Like, it seems like that was five years ago, but that was this year that I watched that and it was good. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we'll get right into our list because I'm sure we have a lot to cover here. We'll also get into some honorable mentions. And then later we'll hear from your awesome movie, your co-host, Jason Harris. But let's get into it. What do you have for your number 10? All right. So at number 10, I have Two for the Road from director Stanley Donan from 1967. And Stanley Donan known for these kind of big poppy uh, Hollywood productions and musicals and stuff like that. But this is a more grounded film. It stars Albert Finney and Audrey Hepburn, who are two actors that one thing that struck me, and I don't know, maybe this is just me watching this movie, that I never would have thought of those as contemporaries, but Hmm. they in fact are. And they play a married couple in this film. And it's basically a, a lot of people, I thought of this as I was watching this. And a lot of people also said this on Letterboxd. It's basically like all of the Richard Linklater before movies in one. So it's, it's, they're taking this trip across Europe and it starts out with them and they're kind of later in their marriage. And you can see that they haven't really 
had that connection in a while and they're just just sort of uh, grumpy with each other or whatever. And Donan puts together this nonlinear narrative where we also see them at, at other points in their relationship, including when they first met, which was also in Europe when they were both traveling. And then when they came back later on, on a vacation with another couple. And so it really charts the whole relationship, but it's put together in this fascinating, like nonlinear way where not only does it jump back and forth among the time periods, but we'll see like a scene where the older version of the couple is, you know, driving past somewhere on the road and then standing on the side of the road is the younger version of the couple and hmm. we'll follow them for a while. So it's very fluid the way it's constructed. Obviously, these are great actors. And this is a kind of a role for Audrey Hepburn where, I mean, the character is kind of glamorous and that's sort of part of her uh, she's high maintenance, I guess one could argue in a way. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a much less uh, sort of larger than life role for her. And of course, she's great. Albert Finney is great. And it's just a really fascinating deconstruction of a relationship over a period of time. Yeah, it sounds great. I, I love the the sound of how that's put together. It sounds really cool. Um, was this one, because I see it's 1967, was this one the kind of, you know, something that you wanted to watch because of the season we did? No, I think it was just a coincidence. This was a movie that I had had. A, a bunch of these are the product of Netflix's DVD service shutting down. <laughs> sure, yeah. Going through all these movies that I had in my queue for that, that I've wanted to watch for however many years and finally got to. So this was one that, who knows when, you know, 12 years ago or something, I read something about it and thought I should watch that. And I put it in that queue. And then finally, as things were shutting down, I got the chance to see it. So it was just kind of coincidental with our awesome movie year season, but it would be a great pick to talk about if we revisit that season. Right on. Well, my number 10 is uh, something that came about from an awesome movie year pick, uh, although it wasn't one that we covered directly. Um, in our 1975 season, I picked Dolomite from Rudy Ray Moore. And after Dolomite, uh, he went on to make The Human Tornado, Petey Wheatstraw, and then my pick, Disco Godfather from 1979. Um, Dolomite was ridiculous as it is, that first one, but these movies just continuously get more and more insane as they go, and Disco Godfather is just the apex. It is so crazy. Um, he's this retired cop slash DJ slash kung fu guy who sure. does he does exorcisms. Um, it eventually devolves into this very extended drug sequence that's practically the last 30 minutes of the movie and i this is just dolomite in his final form it is uh so crazy and it was such a fun discovery uh you know after we did that dolomite episode um it, you know in the in the lead up since it was my pick i decided to do a little bit of extra research and watch these other rudy ray moore movies and it is a lot of fun and if you got any bit of you know a kick from dolomite i recommend going through that whole little series series of just ridiculous 70s Rudy Ray Moore stuff. Yeah, I was not, as we talked about oh, yeah. in that episode, a fan of Dolomite. But as I think we probably also talked about, it doesn't surprise me that you are really into Rudy Ray Moore, who is basically the like 70s black exploitation equivalent of Tommy Wiseau. Sure. I know how much you love <laughs> that kind of stuff. So I will not probably watch that movie, but I believe you that it is totally insane. <laughs> And that is absolutely fair. Yeah. If you if you're not in on Dolomite, do not continue down that road. But uh yeah, insane stuff. But uh what do you have for your number nine? 
So my number nine is also a movie that I watched related to something that we talked about an awesome movie year, but not the movie itself. Uh, we did an episode on Ross McElwee's film Sherman's March, which I had seen before, and I have seen several Ross McElwee films, but I think he's brilliant, and I wanted to take a chance to watch one that I hadn't seen, and so I watched Time Indefinite from 1993, which is great. I mean, and if you if you have seen Sherman's March or any of Ross McElwee's work, I mean, that's his most famous film, but if you've seen any of his films, you, you kind of know what to expect from him. Uh, each of these movies is basically kind of checking in with him and where he is in his life and what he's kind of trying to figure out. And sometimes, like Sherman's March, they're structured around a particular idea. This one really isn't. It's mainly just kind of his travels and uh, dealing with some dark stuff, including the, the death of his father and some... Uh, stuff that he goes through with uh, friends of his and also then positive things though, his marriage and his uh, child who is, uh, you know, at toward the end of the movie uh, about to be born. And so it's got his trademark sense of humor, that kind of wry Southern slash academic sense of humor that he has, but it's dealing with serious thoughts about death and rebirth and all that kind of stuff. And it's just beautiful. And part of it is also, you know, this movie's 30 plus years old now. And I had read about, you know, you see, he's so excited to become a father in this film. And then I had read about the rather tragic end of his son's life decades later. And so that also kind of gave it this retrospective sadness, which doesn't necessarily come from the movie itself, but I think fits in with the theme, again, dealing with loss in a lot of ways. So uh, I think Ross McElwee is brilliant. Um, Sherman's March is, is his best work, I would still say, but this is right up there. So excellent stuff. Right on. Yeah, I really liked Sherman's March and it's actually one of my honorable mentions. Um, so I definitely would like to check out more of those Ross McElwee stuff. Uh, but yeah, this one sounds really interesting and hopefully I'll get to it one of these days. So yeah, great definitely pick. worth it. My number nine, uh, speaking of the the things that I watched really early in the year, I could have swore this was actually on my top 10 first time watches last year, but then I went back and looked and I was like, oh wait, no, I didn't watch this till January. Uh, it's Red Rock West from 1993, uh, the Nicolas Cage, Dennis Hopper, Lara Flynn Boyle film. This is a really like great little crime gone wrong cult classic. I it's I, it actually just today at the time of this recording they were talking about uh, there's a new like pressing of the Blu-ray coming out because this has been a really difficult to find movie for a while. I I wouldn't say this is like a five star classic or anything like that. It's just a solid little thriller with a really great sense of humor to it. A really great Nicolas Cage performance. Great score. The director John Dahl really like puts in all of the elements that you want to see in these kinds of movies. Um, and it, it's just a, a great little thriller. And I watched it for the cult film companion podcast. We had a great conversation about it over there. And, you know, anybody who likes Coen brothers or, uh, you know, that movie Lone Star, we talked about on awesome movie year, like this fits right in with stuff like that. Yeah. I love that stuff. And I would really like to see this film. And like you said, it's been tough to find um, it wasn't whatever physical media it was released on was long out of print. And I know briefly it was streaming on Tubi and nowhere right. else, which is a weird thing, but even that ended. So I, I also saw that uh, Blu-ray release, which looks like an extensive, you know, like they've really given it the care that it deserves kind of release. So I'd love to, to check that out. I 
obviously I'm a huge fan of Lone Star. I had picked that for an awesome movie year episode and yeah. I like the Coens. And I remember really liking John Dahl's film, The Last Seduction, although I haven't seen that in a really long time, but that's another kind of cult classic movie that he directed. So I definitely want to check that out. Awesome. What do you got for number eight? So uh, speaking of uh, cult things, I guess this movie has a cult following. I don't know. I watched this film on Shudder, not really knowing that much about it. It's called Death Game from 1977, uh, another year that we did an awesome movie year season on. But this wasn't for that. It was just something that I checked out. And uh, I guess it was also uh, partially sort of the basis for that uh, Eli Roth, Keanu Reeves film, Knock Knock, which I have mm. not seen. Yeah. But um, I think a lot of people really <laughs> dislike that film. Um, so I can't, I can't speak to that, but death game is fascinating. It stars Seymour Cassell, who is a super underrated actor as this kind of, uh, yuppie ish, uh, I guess you would say, you know, bourgeois upper middle class office worker guy who's uh, a businessman, you know, whose whose family goes out of town for the weekend and they leave him at home by himself. And he picks up these two, uh, or he doesn't pick them up. They show up these two like hitchhikers, these two young women played by Sandra Locke and Colleen Camp who show up and they're kind of asking him for directions or something like that. And he lets them into his house and he, you know, it, it's a, it's a fascinating power dynamic because he's clearly like, Oh, I'm this rich guy. And these hot young women who, uh, you know, don't know where they're going have come to me for help. And, mm -hmm. uh, let me just let them in and take off their wet clothes and all this kind of stuff. Like, sure. and it's, it's very much has the kind of look and feel of like a seventies porno for a lot of it. Um, but over time you realize that he is the victim. He is. I mean, we may not sympathize with him because he's really put himself in this position, um, but they are wonderful sociopaths and they're just going to fuck with him in increasingly messed up ways over the course of this weekend. And it very much, I mean, I obviously it, it's, it's the basis for that Eli Roth movie, but it also reminded me a lot of funny games, like mm. a sort of sexy seventies porn version of funny games. And it's, it's way messed up. The performances are great. You know, a bunch of like all three, these underrated actors starring in this film. And I didn't really know anything about it other than like, I usually trust shutter with random things from the seventies that I've never heard of. And so I watched it and <laughs> sure. it's just totally fascinating. It sounds great. And thinking of Seymour Cassell in a role like that just sounds so interesting. So, uh, yeah, I, I want to watch this. It sounds really great. It sounds right up my alley. So yeah, great I think you pick. would enjoy it. That sounds awesome. I, I'm totally in. My number eight. Another thing I watched is uh, partial research for a Dave's pick on Awesome Movie Year. Uh, we did Spring Breakers on Awesome Movie Year, and I went down a little mini Harmony Corinne rabbit hole and watched Trash Humpers from 2009, which is... Uh, it's a movie, all right. Just is barely. It is it really? I feel like even Harmony <laughs> Corinne would not necessarily agree that it is. It is an experience, if nothing else. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think I said on Letterboxd when I watched this that, like, if I had seen this movie when I was like 18, I'd probably be a filmmaker right now. Like, this is a movie that just shows you that, like, anything is possible in the medium of film. It's completely insane. I don't necessarily know for sure what he's getting at with this, but it's unlike anything else that I've ever seen. And it is definitely, if, if you like any of his stuff, which I love a lot of his stuff, um, it is 
it's just as out there as you could possibly get. And if you have, if you've never seen it, I mean, the title really kind of tells you what you need to know about what this movie is. The title is Trash Humpers, and that's you know kind of what happens here. Um, it's so strange, and I don't think there's really anything else out there that you're going to watch that's going to be anything like this. And that alone, I think, gives it a place on my list. Yeah, I mean, again, as we talked about on Awesome Movie Year, I'm not into Harmony Crew in this whole thing and this seems mm-hmm. like sort of the most extreme version of that so it is it a hundred percent is <laughs> that i would want to watch but um i don't know how you watched it this is another movie that was like super unavailable and i think didn't criterion or some service like that actually uh start streaming it recently or some somewhere i believe made it more available than it had been Speaking to the weirdos that love Harmony Corinne, I, I think I tweeted something about Harmony Corinne, and someone just sent me a bunch of his movies. And I was like, hey, like I links to them. Yeah. If I don't have to go looking for it, you know, normally I'm anti piracy or any of that. But like, if you're sending it to me, I guess I'll just click the link and play it. So. I mean, I think wasn't his original concept that he would just put this movie out on VHS with unlabeled tapes that we yeah. would be distributed through flea markets or something. It seems like something he'd be totally fine with. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. For this movie, at least, if not others. So yeah. uh, I will never watch that. But yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it. Fair enough. So what do you got for number seven? So number seven is I, I usually don't have a lot of like major classics on here. Um, you, you know, not because those movies aren't great or that I've seen them all because I certainly haven't. But, you know, try to mix it up. But you know, sometimes you see something that is a part of the canon and it's that it's for a reason. And so my number seven pick is Witness for the Prosecution, the Billy Wilder film from 1957 that won a, a whole bunch of Oscars. And I watched this because I've been writing a column on Agatha Christie adaptations. And this is probably the most famous uh, or at least the most acclaimed movie ever based on an Agatha Christie novel. And it's not, you know, people think of her and they think of her detectives, you know, Poirot and Miss Marple or whatever. And this is not that. It's mainly a courtroom drama, but it's a fascinating story. And it still has all the twists and reveals and shocking moments and whatever of those those kind of detective stories and great performances. Charles Lawton is the star as the the attorney who takes on the case and is sort of the equivalent of like the detective character, I guess you would say. And he takes on this murder case of, uh, you know, this man played by Tyrone Power, who's accused of murder. And, you know, all the twists and turns in, involve uh, mistresses and secret identities and all the stuff that you would expect, but it's riveting. It's got a lot of humor, you know, because it comes from Billy Wilder. So he really uh, gets in a lot. That Lawton's character is uh, has just recovered from a heart attack and isn't supposed to be under stress and of course <laughs> launches himself into the most stressful situation possible <laughs> and all these people trying to get him to to calm down and and take a nap and 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 whatever is is very amusing. Uh Marlena Dietrich is is fantastic in it who uh I believe she won an Oscar for her role um or at least was nominated. And, uh, you know, it's just everything you want out of this kind of classic mystery slash courtroom drama. So it's not one of those movies that I need to, like, tell people to check out. But, you know, if you're going through some of these Best Picture winners or this wasn't the winner, I think it was just a nominee. But even so, some of these big multi Oscar nominee movies don't hold up. But this one definitely did. Right on. Yeah. Uh, I watched The Apartment last year, the year before. It was fantastic. I'd love to watch more uh, Billy Wilder. And I, I've never seen this one, but it sounds great. 
and uh, I should definitely check it out one of these days. So yeah, I love the apartment too. That is, uh, and and other Billy Wilder. I mean, I, there's still tons I haven't seen, but uh, he's he's amazing. Right on. Uh, a little bit lower brow going for my next one here, but <laughs> <laughs> I am going for number seven with The Stranger from 1995, which is this ridiculous hidden gem that I watched for the Cultworthy podcast for their uh, Guilty Pleasures little uh, sub-series. This is a movie starring uh, kickboxer Kathy Long as this biker vigilante who strolls into town. That town happened to be Goldfield, Nevada, and uh, gets basically attacked by a gang of evil bikers and then takes revenge against them. This is just a super straight up ridiculous revenge movie. Lots of kicks to the faces, lots of motorcycles, lots of leather Danny Trejo's in there. The main villain is played by uh, Andrew Divoff, the, the gin from the Wishmaster series. And he is so over the top. Um, this is just one of those like, where did where did this even come from? Nineties action movies that is so much fun. Uh, there are, there are moments in this that just had me cackling, laughing at just how ridiculous it all is. Um, a, a scene where like there's no one around, and all of a sudden someone just gets kicked in the face. Like where'd they come from? You know, like <laughs> stuff like that. It's it's totally ridiculous, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And I definitely uh, recommend it for for one of those kinds of movies. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And I'm, if nothing else, I'm always curious about watching movies that are shot in Nevada. I mean, in Las Vegas, certainly, but also even maybe even more so when they shoot in these random weird little towns that we have here in yeah. Nevada, like Goldfield, I find that completely fascinating. So I'd love to check that out. There's some other, there's this other movie that I have not seen called Ghosts of Goldfield. That's like a horror movie shot there. And the the woman who produced it, who is a, uh, based in Vegas every year for the past, I, I don't even know, eight something years, she does this screening that's like a charity benefit and uh, bills it as like the worst movie ever. <laughs> like she's really <laughs> leaned into the fact that nice. she produced this terrible movie and is now using it for good by raising money for charity or whatever. And I keep wanting to see that one as well. So maybe someday I'll do a Goldfield uh, B-movie double feature or something. <laughs> that sounds like a blast for sure. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. What do you got for number six? So my number six is another movie that I saw thanks to Netflix's DVD service shutting down. And uh, I'm not sure Two for the Road might be available now to like rent or buy digitally. But this one, I believe, is still completely unavailable to stream or watch digitally at all. And a DVD, I think, is out of print, which is crazy because it's from a major recent filmmaker as a new movie that, you know, you probably talked about on your most anticipated films of 2024. Mm -hmm. uh, that's Jeff Nichols, who's, you know, film The Bike oh, yeah. Riders is coming out. And this is his first film. It's called Shotgun Stories from 2007. And I, I like Jeff Nichols a lot. I feel like I've been sort of like back and forth on him, but uh, most of his movies I, I really do enjoy. And this is uh, this kind of small scale. I don't know if you would really call it uh, noir. I mean, there's some violence and it's basically about this like long simmering feud between these sets of half brothers. I think I said on Letterboxd that it it's basically like a film version of a drive-by trucker song come to life, you know, nice. all this sort of deeply Southern masculine resentment going on here. But it's a really, really well-made character study. Uh, Michael Shannon, who 
maybe has been in every Jeff Nichols movie, I think uh, so. or at least most of them, uh, is the star. And this is early in his career as well. And of course, he's really, really good as sort of the the brother that is the most level-headed. I don't know if that word really describes any of the people in this film, but <laughs> to a relative degree, the one who's kind of trying to to keep everyone from killing each other, which is not necessarily successful on his part. So yeah, it's just a great Southern story, a great kind of character study and, and this sort of noir adjacent film. So hopefully whatever the reason is that it's not streaming, if there's some rights tied up or whatever, Someone like somewhere like Criterion, I'm sure this would fit in perfectly with like a, you know, Southern Gothic or neo-noir or some kind of collection. I'd love for them to pick it up. Yeah. Like you said, I love Jeff Nichols and I've never seen it because it's never really been that available. So I, I would love to watch this one one of these days. Um, yeah, I, I think I've loved every movie he's put out so far. So I'm uh, definitely wanting to see this one of these days for sure. My number six, you were just talking about these canonized classics like Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, it's an awesome movie or movie. It's Dog Day Afternoon. All right. Great pick. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's just, it's so good. It's as good as its reputation. Al Pacino, you know, at, at the height of of Al Pacino, really. Uh, it's it's just <laughs> yes. such, such a great movie. It's so uh, funny. It, it's so like action. It, it's, it's the dramas are everything that you want out of this kind of a bank heist gone wrong movie. It's all there. Some, you know, really interesting takes on these characters. It's, it's, it's a classic for a reason and everything about it really held up uh, the way that you would hope for it too. Yeah, I love that movie. And I think, as I said, an awesome movie year, like I had seen it before and watching it again this time. I, and I liked it when I saw it the first time, but I liked it even more this time. It is just like you said, everything about it is brilliant. The performances, the tension, the mix with like social commentary, but not lecturing or anything like that. You know, it's uh, like impressively progressive in the way it depicts the queer characters and all of that mm -hmm. is just really, really good. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to number five. What do you got next? Well, I'm going to have another canonized classic here, although a movie that I guess maybe wasn't so much that when it first came out and has been kind of building to that. It's Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy. And mm. uh, when Killers of the Flower Moon was coming out and I was also doing a little streaming guide of Martin Scorsese movies to watch, I was trying to catch up on a few different Martin Scorsese films that I had not seen. And I think I watched three and this was by far the best. In fact, I think the only one that I actually liked of those three. <laughs> um, but I mean, Scorsese is so talented that like, you know, to not like one of his films is like, hey, but, you know, there's so many classics like anyway, I'm going to talk about the one that I really did like. Sure. Um, and he is so talented. On the other hand, I, I tend often to think of like watch Scorsese movies and think, you know what? I, it's impressive how that was put together, but I didn't necessarily love it. And this mm -hmm. movie I just really liked. I think it's 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 Scorsese doing stuff that he does really well, but it's also on my wavelength of stuff that I like in terms of this kind of sarcastic dark comedy, which isn't necessarily always the tone of his films. It's a great, great Robert De Niro performance. You know, we talk about young Al Pacino or younger Al Pacino. This is younger Robert De Niro, both when they were actually like putting in a lot of real effort and were exciting <laughs> sure. actors to watch. And certainly De Niro is fascinating here as this character who becomes obsessed with being a comedian and with getting on the talk show with the talk show host played by Jerry Lewis. 
Sandra Bernhardt is so good in this oh, yeah. movie and she is never talked about. I mean, De Niro and even Jerry Lewis get so much attention for this, but she is sort of the secondary psychopath in this film. The also obsessed fan who teams up with De Niro's character to help him kidnap this guy. And, you know, she's also not necessarily thought of as a great actress. People know her more as a comedian, but she's really good in this. The story is, it's funny, it's fascinating, it's suspenseful. There's some like amazing production design here, especially for De Niro's characters, like basement uh, studio thing that he's got or whatever you want to call it. So um, I loved it. I wasn't necessarily like it is a classic, but given my sort of distance from Scorsese movies, I thought, oh, I'll probably find something positive about this, but not necessarily love it. But I totally did. So, uh, you know, again, no one needs me to tell them to watch a Scorsese movie, but you should. Yeah, you really should. Um, I watched this for the first time in the lead up to Joker, uh, a movie that yes. is absolutely inspired by the King of Comedy. But uh, yeah, th this is a great pick. And uh, I think I might have told you this before, but I used to carry a Pride and Joy card in my wallet back in <laughs> high school. And I had no yes. idea it was from a movie. I just thought it was the funniest thing. And I yeah. show it to people. But And I know. think that's hilarious, too, because in the context of the movie, it's a horrible joke. It's a, yeah. it's a way to show that he's a bad comedian. <laughs> Median, and you thought it was a brilliant joke. You know I love bad jokes. So, That's true. Know. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. My number five is so shout out to friend of the show Joe Black for finding this just obscure, weird movie. But this is uh, an amazing find. It's called Congratulations with an exclamation mark. Uh, it's from 2013 from director Mike Brune, who I don't think has really done anything since, uh, starring John Curran. And it's a really hard movie to describe, but it it's a sur surreal detective comedy. You could almost kind of think of it like a mumblecore naked gun. Um, it's just so deadpan and underplayed that you almost wonder if it's like meant to be funny because it's so not played for jokes, but then somehow becomes even funnier because it's so strange. Um, it's a movie that I don't think would be on everybody's wavelength. Uh, it certainly even took me like a good, you know, 10, 15 minutes to kind of get acclimated to like, oh, wow, this is ridiculous, you know? And once I like clued in, it just becomes funnier and funnier as it goes. The, the uh, commitment to the bit of of this character just, just, you know, so deadpan and, and so morose, like it's so strange. Uh, it's, it's about a detective who is, uh, investigating a missing child. Although as he puts it, there's no such thing as a missing person, only a person who cannot be found because of missing information. Once we find the missing information, we find the missing person. Um, it, it's just that's it's, not the definition of missing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're you're already on uh, getting there on the wavelength yeah. here, Josh. But yeah, uh, okay. yeah it, it's so uh, such a weird movie, and I, I just kind of came out of nowhere. I don't think many people have watched it. You go on Letterbox, like not many people have logged this one. Uh, I hope more people check it out. Um, I know ever since uh, you know Joe found it, told me about it, we've already recommended it to a bunch of people who watched it and loved it um i hope it continues to find more fans as the years go by yeah on the one hand i really like mumblecore films mm -hmm. on the other hand i don't know that i trust <laughs> your or joe's taste in this kind of thing but i would yeah. i would check it out it sounds pretty fascinating it looks like it's on good old tubi you mm -hmm. know where you where the weird stuff is so yeah, it sure is 
It yeah. might, you know, it might be something for me to check out. I, yeah. you know, I've seen, I think there's, you know, there's a handful of other mumblecore movies that involve like inept crime solving that I've seen and enjoyed. So, uh, you know, I, I maybe I'll give it a shot. I would be interested to hear what you think if you get to it. But uh, <laughs> what do you have for number four? Well, my, my number four uh, also involves a topic that we've recently talked about on Awesome Movie Year when we talked about Jimmy Stewart in a couple episodes, actually, in our current 1939 season. And I may have even mentioned this film there. Uh, it's one of the many Westerns that Jimmy Stewart made with director Anthony Mann, um, many of which I'd seen before and all of which are worth seeing. But this one I had not seen. It's called The Man from Laramie from 1955. And so it's, you know, it's a little on the later end of this. And Stewart is getting closer to his, like, yeah, he's never really grizzled because he's Jimmy Stewart, but mm -hmm. sort of, uh, you know, aging, weary veteran status here in these Westerns. And, you know, it's a it's a fairly familiar Western kind of story. He's the the lone stranger who comes into town and ends up taking on the, you know, local kind of boss who keeps everyone under his thumb. But it's it's a really, really fascinating, well-acted version of that with a lot of complex characters and a really fascinating sort of almost-ish romance between Jimmy Stewart, who again is, is older here, and the woman who kind of takes him in. And you know, Westerns are a thing that I feel like, especially older Westerns are a thing that like people either are really into or like can't possibly stand. So right. if you like Westerns, then you probably have seen this film. Um, although again, as someone who'd seen a bunch of Anthony Mann films, a bunch of Anthony Mann and Jimmy Stewart films, I still had not seen this. Um, but it's a really good version of a lot of iconic kind of Western elements. And of course, Jimmy Stewart is great. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, but yeah, like like you said, and as we talked about on Awesome Movie, I'm just not really that into the Westerns, but, um, you know, it certainly sounds interesting. And, uh, you know, certainly it has the pedigree of the people you want to see making this kind of movie. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure it's sure it's a great one. Yeah, um, no, I know you. This is not this is not one for you, probably. Probably not. But, yeah. <laughs> I will go to another strange one. Uh, this is a movie called The Dark Backward from 1991. I watched this for an upcoming episode of the Binge Movies podcast, uh, who usually end up uh, recommending weird movies that end up on this list every year. This is a very strange movie starring Judd Nelson and Bill Paxton. It's kind of, I, I would describe it as like UHF meets Freddy Got Fingered meets Death to Smoochie. Um, it's this showbiz satire about this guy, Judd Nelson's character, who wants to be a comedian, but he's just absolutely terrible at stand-up comedy. And then for some reason, he grows an arm out of his back. And Bill Paxton is his sort of friend, but not really a good friend, who basically is trying to push him into using this freak aspect to turn into a celebrity. And it's this weird mix of like showbiz satire and body horror and like weird post-apocalyptic fever dream. Everything in this world for some reason is like a trash dump. Like you, you watch this movie and you think, how did they even have the budget to make everything look this dirty? The whole world is just covered in trash. And it's like absolutely so weird. And, and it fits so well in with the absurdist comedy. 
Um, and Bill Paxton plays this, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of sociopathic, kind of a user of a character, um, as such an absolute maniac. He screams all of his lines. He's like Bill Paxton on like piles of cocaine. Like it's so crazy the way that he plays this role. And, uh, it goes, you know, in no directions that you would expect it to go, but, you know, maybe a little bit because I'm calling it a showbiz satire. You can imagine where some of the the beats end up. You know, just the that you know ending up in the world of show business. But you know, the absurdist angle takes things in such strange directions. Um, this is definitely an acquired taste of a movie. But if you like absurd, I I really think it's one that people should check out. Yeah, I don't know these acquired taste showbiz satires. Did you watch this uh, alongside your favorite film, Fool's Paradise? <laughs> this would be a great influence on Fool's Paradise, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like this is an Adam Rifkin film. And yes. when you mentioned the name, I thought, oh, I've heard that name. Have I seen this film? I don't think I have. But for years, Adam Rifkin uh, was a favorite of the Cinevegas Film Festival here in Vegas, the uh, late lamented film festival. And they showed several very bad Adam Rifkin films, I think, <laughs> this over might have the been years. One. <laughs> that, that, including ones that were weird, like the, the one that he made with Penn Jillette called Director's Cut, which I don't know if you've ever seen, that I feel like you would like because it it is has a lot of this really dumb humor and this weird concept where it's like a fake director's commentary on a film and Penn Jillette plays like this crazy guy who uh, is like, wants to stalk this actress. And so he uh, participates in the crowdfunding of one of her films and he gets a walk-on role and then he like kidnaps her. And it's, so it's like part of the footage from the sort of like, like movie that they've made. That's like this lame thriller spliced in with the footage that he's added as after he's kidnapped her to insert himself into the movie as her love interest. And also he awesome. does commentary on it. It's so it sounds great. I can't yeah. wait. I got, I think it. you would like it. I think you would like it. It's terrible. And I think you would like it. So I don't know about this, but it's possible they even showed this, that that's why I've heard of it, that it was like, you know, some retrospective showing or whatever for Adam Rifkin at Cinevegas, but I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that, that seems possible. They showed some weird stuff there. So they uh, did. Yeah. What do you got for your number three? So let's go in a completely different direction. Go back sure. to classic Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, my number three is John Huston's Key Largo from 1948, which is another, I, I guess you could say that this is probably also, you know, a, a big canonized classic. Although I feel like in terms of Humphrey Bogart, this is a maybe second tier film after some of his, his biggest ones, but it shouldn't be if it is, because it is a fascinating, a, a great film noir um, set in, as the, the title implies, in the Florida Keys. And it's one of these movies where like, even though it was all shot on a Hollywood soundstage, it really captures that you like, you can feel the sweat of the characters in this, you know, humid Florida place where it's, uh, they're, they're preparing for like a hurricane and it all takes place in this kind of remote bar slash hotel that is closed for the season and again is about to be hit by a hurricane and Humphrey Bogart plays this military veteran who shows up and uh, wants to sort of uh, meet with and and honor the family of one of his comrades who died in combat and uh, Lauren Bacall of course uh, is there and um, you know they have they're great fascinating romantic connection, but it's also 
this sort of crime story because Edward G. Robinson shows up as this crime boss who's on the run, who decides to like commandeer the hotel and take all these people hostage. So it's a lot of like morally gray people uh, facing off against each other. And ultimately Humphrey Bogart's character kind of has to face up to some terrible things that he did during the war in the process of getting the courage up to, uh, you know, have a showdown with this crime boss. It also has a great performance from Claire Trevor, which I think I also mentioned on Awesome Movie Year recently when we talked about her in Stagecoach as the girlfriend of the gangster character who's this kind of washed up singer. And she's just, she's pathetic, but she's clinging, you know, he treats her like garbage, but she clings on to every tiny little scrap of attention he gets, gives her. Mm -hmm. And she won an Oscar for this and deservedly so. So, you know, if you like film noir and I mean, this whole cast of fantastic actors, um, another one I may not need to say, see it, but see Key Largo. Right on. Yeah. I, I, I went through a little phase in high school. I watched like probably like a box set of Noir and I, and this could have been in it, but I don't really remember. I'm sure we're going to get to some Bogart on awesome movie here at some point, And maybe I'll do a little deep dive because, uh, sounds like a good one for sure. You know, yeah, it's, a it's one of my favorites of his. I mean, he's, he's great in it. Bacall is great. Claire Trevor, Edward G. Robinson, excellent performances from all of them. Let's get back to some weird shit. Uh, <laughs> my, my number three is Tapeheads, uh, a movie that your awesome movie, your co-host Jason Harris recommended to me and Joe Black did at the same time, actually. Uh, it is a movie starring uh, John Cusack and Tim Robbins uh, as uh, a couple of guys who they start this uh, music video production company. And it's just like a total celebration of people who make weird outsider art um obviously with like all the stuff that i do outside of podcasting all my music and you know the the pup pups and all that kind of stuff like it, you know it certainly fits in with all the things that i love to do and you know love about being creative um it's got all these great cameos weird al jello biafra's in there bobcat goldthwaite's in there um it's super just all over the place and imaginative and creative and strange and John Cusack and Tim Robbins are just so much fun in this movie. Um, it's just a great time. It's also a great companion piece to my last pick, The Dark Backwards. Both of them about, you know, two friends, one who's kind of using the other one, but they're both kind of, you know, trying to get to the same place ultimately. And, uh, you know, they're both in these creative fields and show business and uh, very strange takes on the world of uh, getting into entertainment. So uh, Tapeheads is a really fun movie and something if you, you know, if you loved watching like old, like, you know, liquid television and, you know, music videos in general, you know, you would probably get a real kick out of it. Yeah, that sounds fun. That sounds like a weird thing that maybe I would enjoy more than some of the other weird things that you've mentioned. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it's, it's a little easier to swallow this one. So Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So what do you got for number two? So my number two is Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire, which uh, I watched. I mean, I love Werner Herzog, of course, and have seen many of his films. And But this I watched particularly because I was doing a big uh, vulture piece on all the various uh, film and TV versions of Renfield when that film mm -hmm. came out. And so this was of the like 30 different things that I watched for that. I think this was by far the best one, you know, or certainly at least the best that I'd never seen before. And everything that you would want out of Herzog making a vampire movie is here. Like yeah. <laughs> all of Herzog's like bleak, 
existential despair over the, 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 you know, existence of humanity is infused into this like warped version of the Dracula story. Of course, Klaus Kinski stars as the, well, Count Orlock or whatever, you know, the version of Dracula that, um, is, uh, you know, from, from Nosferatu and, you know, it mixes some of those, uh, off-brand Dracula elements from the original Nosferatu silent film with more, uh, straightforward adaptations of the Dracula novel, including the Renfield character who's actually named Renfield. But, um, it's, yeah, it's surreal and it is, uh, very pessimistic and, you know, uh, Dracula shows up on a boat and not only does he show up and, you know, bite people's necks and drink their blood or whatever, but he brings with him this sort of like all encompassing plague that yeah. just literally kills everyone in this small town. And so it's, it's deserted and eerie and it it's, you know, there's not a, there's not a positive outcome for anyone in this film, but it's beautifully shot. It's really well acted. It's so haunting. And I hope maybe not that Werner Herzog needs rediscovery, but I feel like this is not one of his more famous films. And mm. maybe with the Robert Eggers version of Nosferatu that we're getting this year, more people will check this one out along, of course, with the, the silent original. I, I, the silent film is of course a classic, but I, I liked this more. It's really, really good. And it's like I said, everything you want out of Herzog making a vampire movie. Yeah. I watched the silent one last year and, uh, it's great. I, I really wanted to rewatch this. I, I have seen it, but it's been like at least probably 30 years or something since I've seen it. Uh, right. so I, I, I really, uh, hope to get in a rewatch before the Robert Eggers film. Um, yeah, I remember it being great though, and uh, it it, it uh, it's exciting to hear it so high up on your list because uh, you know it's 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 a cool one for sure, absolutely. Yeah, it might even be my favorite Herzog movie. Right on. Well, I will go for number two with another awesome movie year movie, uh, a right. movie I watched twice this past year. It's Nashville from Robert Altman. I think I'm going to end up with a Robert Altman movie on my list every year, it seems like. But, uh, Good choice. Yeah, seriously. Um, so I watched this for the first time on a plane on my way to Nashville. We took a little trip to Nashville this year. Uh, and then, of course, it ended up coming up as an awesome movie year episode, so I rewatched it again. As far as music movies go, it's one of the best. As far as these like kind of tapestry of like a big uh, cast of characters that all have interlocking stories go, it's one of the best of those as well. Uh, it's one of the best movies of, you know, like that particular Americana scene, uh, you know, it, it's just so much great stuff mixed together into this big boiling pot. It never feels like like overdone. It never feels overstuffed. Um, you get the sense of all of these different people and all their stories and all of this music. And there's just so much to it. And every bit of it is a joy to watch. Uh, this is just such a great movie. And, uh, you know, I couldn't recommend it enough. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as we talked about on Awesome Movie Year, it's a great movie. I'd seen it before and it was excellent to revisit it. It's, there's so much, you know, like you said, like all the characters, all the music, the commentary on America, and it's it's all really well done. So yeah, I Altman, I, I love Altman, but he was someone who was very prolific and there's a lot of his films that I haven't seen, a lot of which unfortunately are hard to see, but not all. And I definitely should watch more of them. Let's get to our number ones, Josh. What do you got for number one? 
Well, I feel like you'll you'll be happy with my number one pick because it is one f- from one of your favorite filmmakers. It's Sam Raimi's The Quick and the Dead from uh, 1995. Not a movie that I would have necessarily expected to be my number one pick of, of anything exactly. I mean, I was e- excited to watch it. I watched it just for my own enjoyment because it was streaming on Netflix at one point uh, this year. And hopefully that helped it reach a wider audience. Sometimes that happens, but not always. But either way. Uh, it's so good. And, you know, this is, I guess this is the second Western on my list, but I feel like unlike the man from Laramie, which is a very classical Western and like, you'll like, if you like those kinds of Westerns, this is a movie that incorporates all of those classic elements. And, and Raimi is visually at least very much quoting like things from, you know, Sergio Leone movies and stuff like that. But it has this Ramy sense of outrageousness and zaniness and and slapstick and so many fun performances uh you know Sharon Stone and early Leonardo DiCaprio early Russell Crowe oh, yeah. um it's it's just super fun a uh, Gene Hackman is great as the villain it's just so much fun from beginning to end it's so creative it's it's funny it's exciting it's visually inventive and, you know, Sam Raimi is super talented, but as we've also talked about on Awesome Movie Year, is very not prolific. And, you know, sometimes you wait a long time and then you're like, this is what you did with your time, Sam Raimi. But um, this, I feel like, is one of his best and a movie that was a flop at the time and, you know, was not really critically well regarded. And I hope it's building more of a following over time. And I wish he had gotten the chance to make more Westerns because it was just so good. Yeah, no, I watched it uh, for the first time last year. I, was it on my list last year? I don't remember. If it wasn't, oh, it, it was in my. It might have been. If not, it was honorable mention for sure. But uh, yeah, it's it's so good and it's crazy that cast. Um, did you mention Keith David? Keith David's in it. I, no, I, yeah, I didn't even. But yeah, yeah, it's just an excellent stacked cast. Yeah, so many great people, and it's so much fun. So many inventive shots. Uh, great pick, absolutely. Um, love it. So uh, my number one, uh, I cheated because uh, I, ha- I have a bunch of number ones. I went on a Ken Russell marathon, and he's a new favorite filmmaker of mine. Um, if I had to choose one, it's Salome's Last Dance from 1988. But you could throw Gothic in there, Listomania, which, of course, we covered on Awesome Movie Year, The Devils. Um, also, Altered States and Crimes of Passion. I went on this marathon and loved all of these movies. I'll focus in mainly on uh, Salome's Last Dance because it is the the first one uh, on my list here. But uh, I I watched this and uh, Gothic for uh, the Coltworthy podcast. We did a, a special episode just on Ken Russell films, and this is a movie that is so strange and so ridiculous and so campy and totally up my alley. Easily my favorite thing I watched this year. It is uh, the story of Oscar Wilde going to his favorite whorehouse and being treated to a performance of his biblical play, Salome. And it's it's recently been banned, and the prostitutes all want to give him a good time, and so they want to put on this performance for him. And he is so giddy about the fact that his own work is being performed for him. Uh, it, it's such a strange concept, and... You know, of course, th- these are whores doing the performance, and so they're they're a little over the top with it. And uh, you know, it's kind of hard to tell at times: is this an amazing performance of this play, or are they like you know hamming it up too much? Is it bad? But it's kind of both at the same time. And that's something that I love about all of Ken Russell's movies: 
is this kind of mix of lowbrow and highbrow that he does through all these movies. The Devils is is that. Uh, Listomania was that. That's part of why I you know fell so in love when I watched that one. Um, it's it's over the top and trashy and campy, but at the same time it's undeniable filmmaking. It's so good. The performances are incredible. The set designs are incredible. The direction, amazing. Um, the music is perfect. All the performances in Salome's Last Dance are amazing. Glenda Jackson is so good in it. Uh, the 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 one who plays Salome, uh, Imogen Malaya Scott uh, is her name. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's her only performance, which is so sad because she's so good in this movie. Um, I have a feeling you might like this one. I know you weren't big on Listomania, but I, I think you might like this one, Josh. I'm not quite sure, but it is insane. Uh, but it might be insane that you can get into. But uh, this year of getting into all these Ken Russell movies has just been a joy, and I cannot wait to get into more of them. I know at the time of this recording, a, a whole bunch of Ken Russell movies just hit the Criterion channel. So I'm looking forward to watching some of the ones that I haven't seen yet. But yeah, uh, just really amazing weird crazy over the top stuff and that is my number one all right yeah i mean as we talked about on the listomania episode of awesome movie year which i you know i didn't care for that film and i've seen i think maybe four ken russell films and i haven't really cared for any of them but um and i've seen gothic twice because mm -hmm. um i watched it for an article after i had initially seen it and it still didn't get to me there but I will say they're certainly bold and certainly going for something. And I appreciate that he's always pushing this strange artistic vision, even in the face of opposition, as we talked about in our episode, I think from, you know, producers or studios or whatever, and always doing his own thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm going to dive into that criterion uh, collection that they've got streaming right now. Although I probably will try to watch the devils if only because it's another one of these movies that's often really hard to see. And I'm sure they're only going to have it for a limited time. And then it'll go back to being completely unavailable. And I missed it when it was streaming on shutter for a while. And, uh, I'd like to give it a shot now. Right on, right on. Well, let's get to some honorable mentions. Um, I already mentioned Sherman's March was on my, uh, list. We'll go to you though. What do you have for honorable mentions? All right. Well, I don't know how many I can mention here because I saw a lot of great movies that I really liked here, you know, more so, I think, than movies that were actually released in 2023. Um, <laughs> but I do want to mention, I think I had meant to mention this on our regular top 10 and I forgot, but uh, this goes along with your your pet frustration with what is a movie's release date. And I yeah. felt like I couldn't count this for my regular 2023 top 10, even though I had thought it was a 2023 release because it was released on streaming on Mubi in, or in January 2023. But it had gotten a very short theatrical release in one theater at the end of 2022, which is, you know, this qualifying bullshit. thing. So <laughs> I left that out, but I also didn't want to necessarily put it on here because it doesn't to me seem like an older movie exactly. So even though I loved it and it would have been like at or near the top of either of those lists, <laughs> I'm just putting in an honorable mention, but it is really good. And speaking of mumblecore, it's definitely a sort of neo-mumblecore. It's called Actual People from writer, director, and star Kit Zohar. It is streaming on Mubi. It is a really, really sensitive and funny and well-acted version of this, like, hey, I'm just about to graduate college and what am I going to do with my life? And 
I may be in my mid forties, but I still am a sucker for this kind of thing and still identify with it perhaps way too closely. But it's a really, really good version of that. It's an incredible debut from someone who I think was in college when she made this film. Um, so uh, that's one that I loved and you know would have put on the list somewhere. A few others, um, Jacques Odiard's Paris 13th District, which was a 2022 release that I saw just at the beginning of 2023 in my catch up, I think is underrated. He's a very acclaimed filmmaker, but this one didn't get a lot of attention and it's more of a low key relationship drama, but is really well done. Um, a, a movie I think did you liked Louis Teague's Alligator, which is just a super fun version yeah. of that kind of ridiculous creature feature and has a, a great performance from Robert Forster yeah. in the lead. Um, Easy Living from 1937, which is one of these uh, impressively kind of progressive screwballish comedies uh, from that era, even during the production code with Gene Arthur, which is something else that I mentioned, I think, on an episode of Awesome Movie Year recently. But Gene Arthur is fantastic. And it's just this very clever, clever comedy. And uh, a movie that I random, I don't know if this, this is, this is fitting in with your weird discoveries that no one has seen. <laughs> I was sort of like going through old screeners, trying to watch some things that I might've wanted to watch. And I came across this film. It's called Same Boat from the, the director, Chris Roberti, who uh, I believe is also the star of it from 2019. And, um, you know, it's another, I mentioned before the, before Sunrise or the before trilogy, when I talked about, um, Two for the Road. And this is another movie that reminded me of this. It was basically like, what if uh, before sunrise, but uh, Jesse is a time traveling assassin who has come to kill Celine. And mm. that's what it is. He's the star, Christopher Verde, the director. And uh, he's sent back in time to kill this woman um, because she's going to do something in the future that will mess up society. Um, but it's also super, super low budget and lo-fi. And he has this device to kill people that looks like, I don't know, like a remote control or something like that, or like a stapler. I forget what it is. Um, but he meets her and then he falls in love with her and it all takes place on a cruise ship. Um, and they shot the whole movie on a real cruise without the cruise knowing, um, so it's got that kind of fascinating aspect as well, but it's just a great, like lo-fi sci-fi thing. Um, it's a great romantic comedy. It's really fun. I, I think it's also maybe on Tubi or it was. Um, so that's one that I think, or more than any of these that people would not have heard of, um, same boat. And then if I can mention more, uh, a couple of like pandemic productions that I came across like lockdown productions. One is Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, another really clever lo-fi sci-fi film. It's a Japanese film from uh, Junta Yamaguchi, the director. And perhaps my biggest surprise of all of these films is Jason Reitman's home movie, The Princess Bride, the Quibi remake of The Princess Bride that I wow. also watched for an awesome movie year episode that we did on the original Princess Bride and just thought it would be sort of a fun thing to watch, you know, for a brief mention. And it's so pure and it's filled with so much goodwill and so much love for this original movie. And also just this sense that we don't have anymore and haven't had for many years of people at the beginning of the pandemic where there was like solidarity and let's all help each other out and we're going to get through this. And it's all these actors kind of getting to, 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 to get rid of the facade of being celebrities and just be goofy and have fun. And like, it really weirdly touched me watching this. So you can find it on YouTube now. Cause of course Quibi doesn't exist, but nothing that I ever would have thought would have been on here, but that is my last mention. So that's a lot of stuff. 
Hey, that's some interesting stuff in there. That last one is a very interesting pick, but uh, yeah, yeah uh, good stuff in there. I will, um, I'll throw in, so I mentioned Sherman's March. I'll also mention Star 80, which would probably be my number 11 on my list. We talked about Bob Fosse on Awesome Over Here with All That Jazz. I'd been wanting to get around to it since then, and uh, it's great. Um, also, when we did the uh, sexploitation episode, I also watched Super Vixens, the the Russell Meyer film from 1975, that was just totally ridiculous and a lot of fun. Um, a few more on my list. One Crazy Summer from Savage yes. Steve Holland. Totally ridiculous movie. Uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Speaking of your Nosferatu. Uh, yes, that yeah. is a that was a rewatch for me on the, when I was doing that article and I absolutely loved it. It's great. Absolutely. I I don't know how I had never seen it before. Um, Another one I don't know how I had never seen, In the Mouth of Madness, uh, was really, really good. Also, Stone Cold, which is another just ridiculous 90s action movie. So ridiculous. So over the top. I'm not sure I buy that. Yeah, I I loved it. I don't know if I would say enjoyed, but certainly fascinated by Sallow or the 120 Days of Sodom, which I watched and is crazy, um, but certainly, you know, a unique experience of a movie. And then one other one uh, that I watched for a uh, podcast guest appearance, Love in the Time of Twilight, a very strange Hong Kong movie. Uh, it's 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 action, it's romance, it's a uh, ghost story. It's it's very weird and kind of all over the place, kind of like live action cartoonish in a way. Uh, really weird pick, but um, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, I haven't heard of that one. That sounds fascinating. And I will definitely second, like I said, I, I don't think I'd watch Bram Stoker's Dracula since it was in theaters. And I rewatched it for that article. And and aside from the Herzog movie, that was that was my favorite there. I think it's just really well done. And it's one of those movies, again, I think that was like sort of dismissed at the time that it came out. And it's had a real resurgence, I think, in appreciation recently, which is great. Absolutely. So what we're going to do now is actually hear from your awesome movie year co-host, Jason Harris. Of course, uh, he always joins us for our regular top 10, but he sends in these recordings of him doing his top 10. So let's hear from him and then we'll uh, see if there's any that we want to comment on. Hey, everybody. This is my part of the show. Are you bored of Josh and Dave? Imagine how I feel. I got to deal with them every week. Anyway, that said, here are my first time watches from other years that I saw. In 2023, top 10. Here we go. Number 10 from 1983. It's Bob Fosse's Star 80. This guy just doesn't miss. He has such a clear vision. He has such a clear style uh, and an energy with his films. Eric Roberts off the charts in this thing. Uh, and just, just a great movie. Mariel Hemingway getting it done. From 1957, my number nine pick, 12 Angry Men, Sidney Lumet. How did he do this thing in 57? It feels ahead of its time. Mostly one room, bunch of guys arguing, yet he keeps moving the camera, making it count, keeping us invested, and just has a real dynamic feel to it. Number eight's from 1978. It's Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Uh, this is a, one of those wildcatter, oil rigger, you know, let's go get rich and better our lives stories. And uh, Malick just... He creates such beautiful images in his movies. And when the stories sing, they sing perfectly. And uh, this will not be the last time I talk about Malik on this list. So that leaves us at number seven. Yeah, number seven. That's going to be a movie called The Outfit that I don't think any of you have seen. 
I hope some of you have seen it, and I hope some of you do. I read about it in Quentin Tarantino's book. It's from 1973. It's got Robert Duvall, and basically uh, he goes to jail because he robbed from a mob-owned bank, and when he gets out, the mob tries to put a hit on him. They miss, and Duvall says, you're going to pay me X amount of money, and until you do, I'm going to keep knocking over your banks and taking out your your guys there. So I read about this in Quentin Tarantino's book, and it's just one of these hard-boiled, grizzled 70s flicks that I really love. Real real in that pocket of the 1970s. I got to give it up for director John Flynn there. Speaking of the 70s and grizzled revenge movies, we come to number six for me, and that's from 1971. It's Don Siegel. It's Clint Eastwood. It's Dirty Harry. Are you feeling lucky, punk? I am because this movie just crushes with action and revenge. And obviously, uh, I don't need to tell you how famous this Clint Eastwood character and movie have become. But this thing, just from beginning to end, that character of Harry Callahan and everything he does just keeps you invested the entire time. And uh, it's it's a boilerplate and it boils over. So we get to number five. It's from 2002. One of my favorite directors, Spike Lee, 25th Hour. Not sure how I missed this one. He takes some big chances. Uh, the ending is very interesting. Uh, Norton, Rosario, uh, Edward Norton, Rosario Dawson, both uh, given prime performances here. And then, of course, Brian Cox before his Logan Roy years, just making the most of every second he's on screen. Number four is back to the 70s and back to Terrence Malick. It's his debut film from 1973, Badlands. Martin Sheen and Sissy Spacek, just excellent in this thing. And with so much voiceover, I don't know how you can make a movie uh, just work at this high of a level. There are very few that can just have voiceover throughout this much that can keep you invested and interested. And... Once they go on the run, it has one of my favorite sequences that I think I've ever seen in film with them just kind of playing a uh, hideout in their tree fort there. Definitely recommend that. Speaking of uh, going on the run or hiding in the woods, let's get to number three. It's from 1972. It's Agiri, the Wrath of God by Werner Herzog. What does mean? I'm not going to do a Werner Herzog right now. What we understand from Agiri is what we understand of all mankind, of trouble and power and corruption, and in the end, the inevitability that life and death catches up with all of us. Bravo, Mr. Herzog. You've done it again. Number two, this movie blew me away. It's from 1981. It's Michael Mann's Thief. Holy cow. James Kahn at his most macho, and that's exactly what you want here. Michael Mann just... uh, Doing probably this film as only he can with his style, his flair, his panache, and an incredible soundtrack from Tangerine Dream, an incredible score. Uh, This one just feels like it could have been made in 1921. It could be made today or it could be made in the future. It's just so singular. My favorite first time watch of this year comes from 1975. It's Robert Altman's Nashville. I watched this thing. I said, how did he pull this off? It's so elusive, optical, elliptical, all over the place, yet it all kind of resides in a cohesive unit. Uh, 
I feel like a lot of chances were taking and they could have gone spectacularly wrong. But with an expert like Mr. Altman, what you get is a masterpiece. So those are my first time top 10 watches from this viewing year. I hope you guys had a great viewing year as well. Now back to boring Dave and boring Josh. Happy New Year, everybody. So, I mean, first of all, he had Star 80 on his list, which uh, was on my honorable mention. So good on Jason for that one. Uh, Nashville, which was on my list. Uh, it was his number one. So, you know, absolutely. I agree with him there. Badlands was my number one last year. Uh, so shout out to Badlands. And I did watch 12 Angry Men this year randomly. So uh, good pick there. Yeah, I've seen almost all of those. Uh, Star 80 is one of the only that I haven't seen, and it's the only Bob Fosse movie now that I haven't seen. I did watch Sweet Sweet Charity this year, which is enjoyable. I mean, it's not on my list anywhere, but it is it is very well done, and Shirley MacLaine is really good in that. Um, but all, yeah, great picks there, generally. Uh, I love Terrence Malick, so Days of Heaven and Badlands. It's great that he got to both of those. And 25th Hour, I remember really, really liking when it was first in yeah. theaters and something that I would... Love to revisit. And uh, 12 Angry Men is really good, but my my take on 12 Angry Men is always um, that he was super guilty. <laughs> probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, we also did a uh, Piecing It Together episode on Thief a while back. Uh, th I mean, that score is just absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. So shout out to that. But um, yeah, great picks there, Jason and Josh. I think that does it for this episode. What do you got going on on Awesome Movie here? Well, I mean, as I think I mentioned multiple times already, we've been talking about 1939, which is giving us a chance, I think, hopefully to watch some movies that we've never seen before and hopefully we'll enjoy. We'll see how that progresses. But I'm very excited just that we're looking further back in film history. So that's going on, I believe, still as of now when this is out. So check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out awesomemovieyear.com, uh, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram, and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, X, whatever. Right on. And uh, will you be doing a written version of this top 10 first-time watches? Yeah. Last year, I really dragged my heels. That's like the only <laughs> thing I post on my old blog anymore. But I mean, I started doing this many years before we ever did it as a podcast and many years before it became like a huge thing that a lot of people do now. So yeah. I definitely will be keeping that up. Hopefully it won't take me quite as long, but joshbellhateseverything.com is uh, where you can read last year still because that's the most recent post. And nice. then you can hopefully also read some more uh, of my thoughts on these movies there as well. And maybe someday something else, but I won't promise that. Right on, right on. Well, Josh, as always, thanks for being here and look forward to getting you back sometime soon. Can't wait. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harris, and we co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years, and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best pictures, some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984, and we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about some of our favorite first-time watches of 2023. Thanks to Josh Bell for joining me on that one, and thank you to all of you for listening 
If you're enjoying the show, make sure you are subscribed wherever it is that you're listening. And if there happens to be a button that you could click on for a five-star rating and review, I would very much appreciate that. It helps make sure more people see and listen to the show, and then we'll get to do more and awesome things with the show as we continue forward. So please do that. And also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And don't forget about the Patreon I told you about at the top of the show. And also, if you want to support the show, we've got something new going on. It is a store called Vouch. You can check it out at vouch.store slash piecing it together. There'll be a link in the show notes as well, where there's some really awesome products that you can buy. And of course, we'll get a little kickback if you do uh, find anything that you want. But they've got some mixed drinks. They've got coffee they've got a toothbrush um i'm of course partial to the coffee you guys know i'm a big coffee drinker over here but um you know you've got that split rock coffee they got dark roast and light roast both in whole bean and ground delicious coffee so you know you could check out some of the products over there in the vouch store it's vouch dot store slash piecing it together and if you want to support the show get some cool stuff over there um with that said let's close this out with a piece of music like i always do and first time watches is always looking back at film history so let's look back to my first album for a piece of music to close us out with today so let's see what should i play i'm going to play a track called a thousand years for my first album as you guys have heard in recent episodes i am currently doing a thing called 24 for 2024 where i'm releasing a new song on the first and third friday of every month of the year 2024 and the first music video from the 24 for 2024 project was burn and the music video for burn was originally an idea that i had for a music video for a thousand years and so that's why i'm going to play this one so check out burn the music video on my youtube channel youtube.com slash music by david rosen and also check out the song burn over on spotify or wherever you listen to music but right now we're going to play a thousand years which you can find the full album echoes in the dark on any of the streaming services so i hope you enjoy this track we will be back with more piecing it together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.